Father and Son and Spirit, Triune God, we do thank you and praise you for the untold generosity and love that you've poured out into our lives that we return to you. And we pray now that you would pour out your spirit upon the reading and preaching of your word, that it would not just stay in our minds, but penetrate our hearts, that we would respond to your word with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Our scriptural reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. You can find it in your bulletin. And reading uh, this morning is um, Drew Cleveland. He's our new director of young adult uh, and college ministry. Um, if you haven't met Drew, I hope you'll get to know him. So hear God's word from Mark chapter 4. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowds behind, they took him along, just as he was, in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. Great to see all of you here. Last week, uh, if you were here, you'll know that we started a new sermon series called The Questions of Jesus. Uh, Jesus asked more than 300 questions in the four Gospels, and his questions, if you look at it carefully, are, are like keys in which he is seeking to open the door of the soul to something new, to, to, that we might know something new about him, about ourselves, and about his kingdom. And so, I'm asking you to consider uh, that these questions that we're looking at week by week are actual questions that Jesus is asking to you. What is it that he is inviting you? What new thing is he opening you up to in your soul about him and about his kingdom? So our question this morning is this, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Every year, you've probably seen it, there's lists that come out that have surveyed you know, the, the greatest American fears. Some of these lists have become sort of a joke. Maybe you've heard on some of these lists that the fear of public speaking for many Americans ranks higher than the fear of death, uh, which led Jerry Seinfeld to famously say that more people would rather be in the casket at a funeral than doing the eulogy. Um, <laughs> But Chambers University is actually um, the most reputable of these scholarly institutions that actually does a real survey on the list of American fears. And they produce it every year. I I read the one in 2018 this week. And the 2018 results were a little different for a number of reasons. One was because four out of the top 10 fears were related to the environment and climate change, which those fears had never actually reached the top 10 before. One was political corruption, which was also a new one. They also included some common fears that always make the list, like illness and death and financial instability and so on. But the most significantly different thing about this 2018 results from any of the years previously was the sheer levels of fear. Uh, The scholars noted that never before have so many people cited that they shared 
all 10 of the fears on the list, more than 40% of the respondents noted all 10 of the fears as sharing them. And the majority of the people said they had significant intensification of fear over the last few years. So overall, what this is showing us is that Americans are more afraid than we've ever been before. We are not only afraid of more things, but the intensity of our fear is higher than it ever has been in recorded history. So, Jesus' question, why are you so afraid? This is very personal. Because I'm guessing if the survey is right, a lot of you are afraid. Our society is afraid. Your neighbors are afraid. And yet Jesus is asking us, why are you so afraid? So, let's dive into this really lovely, this beloved story that you've probably heard before, but let's really try to see it and hear it freshly, what it tells us about the true nature of fear, and then what is its antidote, okay? So let's first just talk straight up about the truth of fear. Let's, let's look at the story together. Look with me. The story begins, Jesus and his disciples get into a boat. They head across the other side to the Sea of Galilee, and verse 37, you'll see there in the text, says, that a furious squall comes up. Now, this, this is actually pretty common. Um, if you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee, you'll notice that it's about 700 feet below sea level. Um, and on one side is a mountain range, Mount Hermon, and then on the other side is sort of gently sloping hills. And so what actually happens is cold air comes down over the mountains and warm air rises off the lake. So these very sudden and violent weather conditions are actually very common even today around the Sea of Galilee. Now, this particular storm was obviously quite anomalous because of its scale, its size. It says in the, our NIV translation, squall, the actual Greek word is the same word for hurricane. So it was this, this violent of a storm. It was so violent, in fact, that these seasoned fishermen who had been out on the boat for many, many times, the length of their career, were so terrified that they thought they were gonna die. That's how big this storm was. Now, here's a clue that we need to understand as modern readers, that ancient readers would have understood, we modern readers would miss. Every time the Bible or ancient literature begins to speak about the sea or storms, it is a powerful symbol for ancient readers about everything that was chaotic and unpredictable about our world. So one scholar I read this week said this, the sea symbolized for the Jewish people the dark power of evil, threatening to destroy God's good creation, God's people, God's purposes. And if you, you can trace that metaphor throughout the Bible. In Genesis 1, you see there's a watery chaos that God has to bring order out of. The, the sea is often a metaphor for destruction. In the Psalms, the Psalmists often speak of, you know, the waters rising and coming up to my neck. At the end of the Bible, uh, St. John speaks of the final creation, the new creation, when Jesus redeems all things, and he says, what does he say? There will no longer be any sea. Now, Jesus has nothing against swimming. I'm guessing there will be water sports in the kingdom of God. But the point is, is that the sea represents a powerful symbol of all that is nefarious, all that undermines God's purposes. It represents all that is chaotic in the world. And for a non-sea-fearing people like the Jews, the sea represented all that could destroy them. And it makes sense if you think about it. I know, if you, have you been to the, I'm sure some of you have been to the ocean. And uh, you, you've had the experience of standing in, in the water, maybe waist deep. And you're standing there and you can't see really through the water. You can't see what's down there. And suddenly 
something like slithers by your leg, you know? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? You know, it's, it's horrifying because you can't see what's down there. You don't know what it is. And unlike the land in which you can actually see what is coming after you, and even if you see something coming for you, you can be prepared. It's somewhat predictable. And not so in the deep waters. You don't know what's under there. You don't know what might be there, what threat might overtake you at any moment. It makes you feel vulnerable and out of control. And that's what this story and really the whole Bible is saying in using this metaphor of the sea is that this is our human situation. We are not on the land as a human race. Metaphorically speaking, we are not on the land where everything is firm, the horizon is clear, where all is predictable, where we can see what's coming for us. No, we are on the sea where all is unpredictable, we're not in control, we don't know what's under there, and we don't know what kind of storm or wave might crash up onto our boat at any moment. That is our human predicament. I read a beautiful book recently um, called Birthing Hope by a woman named Rachel Marie Stone, and she tells the story in this book about having a son living overseas. Her son contracted some sort of illness. She didn't know what was happening. The doctors didn't know what was happening. She's in the hospital with him. He's dying. He's at the point of death, sitting there with her little boy full of IVs, and she cries out. And she writes this. She realized, I really am a mother now. I protect, I nourish, but in the very act of giving life, I have relinquished control, or better realize the truth that control is an illusion. I do not want to demand my son's survival. I do not want to admit that his death is a possibility. To love is to unshield oneself. And I was unshielded, unseparated, exposed. Listen to this. A fisherman caught in a storm in a dinghy on a churning sea. And those of you who have been parents understand this, that there, so many of our fears are bound up with our children, are they not? That in giving life, we realize we have released control and there is nothing like a child who is sick or in harm's way or in trouble that can make you truly realize just how out of control we really are. And that is the truth about fear. It is that this world actually is a deeply broken and shattered place, that we are not in control, we're not immune from trials, we're not living the stable lives that us modern Western people often think that we are, and that even if you do happen to be one of the very privileged minority of people within the developed West who can actually live a life of relative shielding from the chaos and live lives of predictability, there is no amount of wealth or power that can shield you from sudden storms. That at a moment's notice, our lives can be, our health can be taken away. Good circumstances can be taken away. Financial security, safety, jobs, people. And in the end, even if you manage to avoid nearly every kind of storm that life can throw, every one of us has to face the most scary storm of all, the storm of death itself, which is the greatest monument to human vulnerability. The final hurricane is your own personal extinction. That is how out of control we really are. How do you feel about that? Now, you might, you might ask, gosh, why is the preacher being so existential this morning? <laughs> Here's why, friends. Because I want us, I really want us to be truly courageous people. And if we're going to be courageous, we have to face the truth about our world with brutal honesty. There is a stream in pop psychology right now that suggests that fear is really just a problem in your brain. 
right? If you can just learn how to manage fear physiologically, then you can do anything you want. So a friend of mine told me that on the painted on the wall of his gym, it says, everything you want is on the other side of fear. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, because I'm pumping iron and I know I can beat anything, you know, right? And, and the idea is that fear is just in your brain. It's in your body. And if you can just overcome it, you can achieve whatever you want. And there's actually a psychological treatment of fear called systemic desensitization, which basically you train your body to relax in the face of fear. So when you experience like the, the emotion of fear, what you do is you focus your thinking on something pleasant, like a beach in Tahiti, right? And that helps your body manage the physiological effects of the emotion. Now, I know there's some validity in these things, but to me, it seems highly superficial. Because fear is not just a collection of physiological responses. There is a deeper reality to our fear that this story is pointing to, and that is that this world is actually a treacherous and dangerous place for humans to live. Thinking about Tahiti is nice, but it will not do anything about your impending death. It's just a fact. You know, one of the most popular songs in America right now is called Fear by the hip-hop artist Kendrick Lamar. And in this song, what he does is he traces his life from age 7 to age 17 to age 27. And the great thread of his life that ties it all together is an overwhelming experience of fear. And his fears are not in his head. Growing up as a black man in urban America, his fears are real. His, his fears of, of domestic abuse and of the violence of the gang culture in his neighborhood and of uh, police that he and his peers were terrified of and robbery and fraud. And for him, fear is the truth of his life. And I think one of the reasons why this song is so popular to the youth of America right now is because Kendrick Lamar is actually daring to tell the truth about the reality of our world. And if we're going to be people who are really courageous and who can face life with courage and hope, then we have to be honest too. We live in a world that is more like the unpredictable sea. Just the past two weeks in our church body, a husband fell dead without any warning. Jobs were lost without any sign. A family walked out of a doctor's office with a cancer diagnosis for their child. A woman left a physician knowing that she would suffer from chronic pain for the rest of her life. Just in the last two weeks. This is the world we live in. We've got to be clear-headed about how out of control and unpredictable human life really is, and that in the end will only make us courageous. Because if we can face that in the power of God, then we can face anything, and it will make us far more compassionate and empathetic towards those who really do face brutal and harsh realities every day in our world. So if this is true, what is the truth? What is the power that Jesus wants to give us over fear. Well, look, here's one thing that we know about fear, is that fear innately, instinctually looks to a person, right? So when your little kid wakes up in the middle of the night and she's terrified of the dark, what does she do? Instinctually. Does she get out a notebook and work out the logical probability of the veracity of her fears? No, no. No, what does she do? She runs for her mommy and dad to get in bed. That's what she does. So fear, what fear does, it instinctually, at a deep primal level, 
looks to a person. And not just any person. This person has to be bigger and stronger than the threat, than the fear. You know, in December, um, the Widmer family went out on a boat with the Garrett family. Kim and Parker Garrett, you, you, some of you know them. And Kim and Parker, are, they, they, they're at home in the water. They were both raised on the water. Now, I would not have thought of December as a good time to go out on the ocean. But Parker thinks it is. And so he took us out, and it was very nasty. It was very rainy. It was very tempestuous. It looked like that there was a storm coming and that could tip over the boat at any moment. And much like the Jewish people, the Widmers are not seafaring people. (laughs) And I was nervous. Sarah was nervous. She was asking me lots of questions. Are we going to freeze to death? You know, is the boat going to tip over? What's going to happen? And so I, with as much authority as I could muster, said to her, no, I'm sure it will be fine. Now, did this comfort her? No, it did not. Why? Because I know nothing. I know, I know, I know nothing about the sea. I know nothing about boats. I know nothing about sailing. I know nothing. I have no dominion over that realm, right? So what did she do? She asked the same question to Parker, are we going to be okay? He said, yes, and she is consoled. Now, I did say to her later, I, you did ask me the same question. <laughs> but the difference is what? That Parker has dominion over the realm of the sea. And that's what fear does. Fear instinctually looks to a person, and not just any person, the person who has authority over the threat that comes against us. And this is what the disciples somehow, even though they were just getting to know Jesus, they somehow knew this is the one who has dominion over the sea. And so, and 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 this story is amazing. I mean, look at his power. First of all, he's sleeping. Who, Who sleeps in a hurricane? Only one other person sleeps in a hurricane in the Bible. Do you remember who it was? Jonah. Yes, Jonah sleeps in a hurricane. Only two kind of people sleep in a hurricane. One is someone who is completely checked out of reality. That is Jonah. The other who sleeps in a hurricane is a person who is in total control of reality. That is Jesus. He sleeps on a cushion, on a boat, and a hurricane because he has nothing to fear and he is in total control. Then they somehow are able to rouse him. Now Jesus stands up. You imagine him just sort of stretching and yawning. And then he looks into the heart of the storm and he says, literally in the Greek, he says two words. He says, quiet down. Like a man speaking to a dog. Quiet down. We have a dog. His name is Leo. He's a very exuberant golden retriever. And when someone comes to the door, he begins leaping up and down. Very high. He's very strong. Leap up and down. I say, Leo, quiet. Down. Does he obey? No, he does not. He just keeps on (laughs) leaping. He keeps on leaping. Jesus says this to a hurricane. Becca could not even say this to you all. You know, at the greeting time. Quiet. Down. No. Jesus says this to a hurricane. Quiet down, and it is calm. It says complete calm. Now, have you been to the ocean after a big storm? Have you seen how those waves just roll and roll and roll? How, it takes days sometimes for the sea to calm. Jesus says, one word, quiet. This, the sea is crystal calm. I mean, this, this, is, this is incomparable power 
If, if there was one thing that the ancients agreed on, and all the eclectic societies, they believed, they agreed on this, that no one can control the sea but God alone. In fact, there's an amazing uh, legend about a Danish king in the 12th century named King Canute, who was apparently a very humble king. When all of his subjects were fawning all over him and trying to exalt him as a god, he said, take my throne down to the sea. So they picked up his throne and they carried him down to the sea and they set him on the shoreline. And then he sat down in his throne and he looked at the sea and he said, cease, stop, O tide. And instead of listening, the tide just kept rolling and it rolled right up over his legs and it soaked his robes. And so what King Canute did is he looked around at his subjects and he stood up and he took off his crown and he hung it on a crucifix. And he proclaimed, let all men now know how empty and worthless is the power of kings. For there is none worthy of the name, but he whom heaven, earth, and the sea obey. See, only God can stop the sea. And yet here is a man. And I want to be clear, y'all. Skeptics, hear me. This is not a metaphorical story. You can tell from the way the story is told, the details given, evening, other boats, cushions, just as you could tell. This is an actual memory of men in the boat that a man stood up and with a word spoke to a hurricane and calmed the sea. He does not pray. He does not ask for help from God. He does not invite intervention from the Most High. He just simply speaks because he has all the power within himself. And then the penny drops for the disciples. You see in verse 41, it says, then they were terrified. <laughs> they were far more terrified now than they were even in the storm. Why? Because they suddenly realize that the guy in the boat is God in the boat. That they are sitting in the presence of the Most High King. That he is actually bigger than the hurricane, badder than the storm, greater than their fears. And with this person, they have the one who is bigger than any storm. So here's what this story is doing. It is inviting you to do something very different with your fears than you are normally advised. The lesson of this story is not that Jesus makes your storms go away. No, this lesson is, is that disciples of Jesus expect storms. But our strategy in the storm is not to try to diminish the fear and make it smaller, nor is it try to inflate yourself to make you stronger, but the strategy of the Christian disciple is to see that the one in the boat is bigger, that he is mightier than the storm. And this book of Mark systematically demonstrates that Jesus has authority over every storm that could undo us. He has power over demons and their menacing forces. He has power over illness and disease. He has power over suffering and sickness. He has power over the physical elements of nature. In the end, Jesus himself is thrown into the most terrible sea of all. He's drowned in the chaos of death itself, and yet even that cannot hold him. He rises up from the grave. He breaks its back. Jesus looks into the most horrible storm, death itself, and he says to death, quiet, down. And death goes down. Death goes down. So if it's true that what you need most, what fear needs most, is a powerful person, the person we're being given in the gospel is the most powerful person of all, one greater than all the storms. 
And if you look to him, and if you ground your life in him, and if you see him in your boat, there is not a force in the universe that can wipe you away, not a wind or a wave that can bring you down. In him and him alone, you are safe. You are safe. So let me just, at the end here, apply this. First on a personal level, then on a community level, all right? So first on a personal level, fear is bossy. I've come to realize this as someone who actually struggles a lot with fear and anxiety. Fear is bossy in its insistence that the way it sees the world is reality. (laughs) So look at verse 38, the disciples question to Jesus, don't you care if we drown? Does that question resonate with you at all? Have you ever asked that question to Jesus? Do you not see what is happening in my life? Do you not see this storm? Do you not see these ways? Don't you care if we drown? See, behind the question is a bossy insistence that I understand the full picture here. You obviously don't love me. You obviously don't care. You obviously are checked out. Otherwise, you would not be allowing this to happen. See, that's what fear does. Because the emotions are so strong and the feelings are so deep, fear can insist that I actually understand the situation completely, that God clearly doesn't love me, and that I'm abandoned. That's what fear shouts. But what Jesus does is he shoots right back, do you still have no faith? He is challenging the emotion of fear. He's challenging the bossiness of fear, saying you must reject your feelings of abandonment, your feelings that you are not loved, and to trust me instead, the one in the boat who has proven to you again and again that I am powerful and trustworthy over the threats, right? And so what this does is it gives us a wonderful practice when facing our fears that what you got to do, you've got to recognize that your feelings are not actually facts, Your feelings are often not telling you the truth about your situation. And then instead, the authority is the word of God bearing witness to Jesus that tells you the truth about your situation, that you are loved and you are not alone. So I tell you how this was worked out in my own life. Um, Y'all know that before I was pastor here, I planted a church with my dear friend and co-pastor, Don Coleman. Some of you know Don. And a couple years into planning a church, planning a church is difficult, and a couple years in, we faced our first real crisis, our hardship, where everything started to really fall apart, and we kind of thought the whole thing was going under. And I freaked out. <laughs> I'm not proud of that. I, 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 my anxiety went really up. I started having panic attacks. I was highly afraid. I had all this fear in my life. And one day, I was with Don, and I was, we were supposed to be praying, but what I was actually doing was trying to map out a solution for (laughs) how the church would be rescued. And Don just stopped me, and he said, may I ask you a question? Now, much like Jesus, when Don asks you a question, you must be nervous. He said, may I ask you a question? I said, yes, Pastor Don. He said, in your entire life, have you ever had to exercise real faith? Now, that is a Jesus question right there. (laughs) That is a question that penetrates the soul. And I began to realize through that experience that because of my relatively privileged background 
And the predictability that I had had in my life and the fact that I came from a community that stressed self-reliance over everything else, my first instinct in any stressful storm was to trust that my own evaluations and my own assessment and my own feelings were actually, were accurately depicting the reality and the truth of the situation. But Don, growing up in poverty, growing up in the housing project, growing up in a foster home, living with constant storms, had learned over many years to cultivate such a strong relationship with Jesus, so much so that his first instinct in any stressful situation was to not look to himself, who he knew had no resources, but to instead to look to the one who was in the boat. And I'm telling you, in 15 years of walking with Don Coleman, I have never once seen him afraid. Never once. Not even when he faced his own death. So faith is something, what, we're, what I've learned is faith is something we can learn. It's a muscle that we can exercise, like Don said. So as we meditate on the promises of God, as we come to corporate worship and remind ourselves of the truth, as we memorize scripture and let it penetrate our hearts, as we cultivate a relationship with Jesus through prayer and let him prove his authority and power over our situations, we learn to combat feelings with facts. Just because you feel like God is checked out doesn't mean he is. Just because you feel like you're alone doesn't mean you are. And just because you feel like things are out of control doesn't mean it's true. What is true is the higher authority of the word of God and the testimony about Jesus. And you must always trust the authority of the word of God to be higher than the authority of your own emotion. That is the great struggle of the Christian life. And that takes practice to trust those things. And again and again. So here's what you do. You feel fear arising? You got to fight. You got to fight it. Just like Psalm 46 is an amazing example of this. Here's a guy who's afraid. And so what does he do? This is so countercultural. Instead of trying to downplay the threat, he actually exaggerates it. He says, even if the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, even if the ocean envelops me, even if my worst nightmare occurs, even if the doctor gives me the diagnosis that I fear, even if the thing that I most fear about my kids actually occurs, he, he imagines the very worst. And then he turns to the truth and says, God is my refuge the very present help in trouble. I am never alone. Jesus is stronger. He has beat death. Most assuredly, he can beat this. And so as you do this again and again, you find that you instinctually begin to look not to yourself, but to the one in the boat. I am not nearly far along as Don, but I'm a whole lot further than I was 10 years ago. Thanks be to God. So that's a personal application. Finally, a community application. I am convinced that one of the most powerful ways that the church in America can witness to Jesus in our time is to reject the culture of fear. To reject the culture of fear. You know, George Orwell, way back when he wrote 19, the book 1984, recognized that fear serves the people in power more than anything else. That it is one of the most effective tools of social manipulation. So by fueling fear and highlighting external threats, leaders can suppress dissent and unify a group. That's what fear does. And so fear, right now we see fear being wielded as a powerful weapon, both by the right and the left in our society, trying to animate their bases, shrieking about the coming apocalypse that most assuredly will undo us. And what makes me so sad as a pastor is that I see the American church again and again succumbing to the politics of fear. Just giving in. So American churches are full of scared Christians who hoard our money 
and terrify our children and withdraw from communities and institutions and give untold energy to securing our own futures. And the irony of this is that frightened Christians actually perpetuate the secularism that we hate. Because when we are afraid, we are essentially agreeing with the pundits and agreeing with the politicians that yes, God is absent from this world and it's up to us to secure our lives, our children, and our futures. (laughs) Friends, fear, listen, fear is not insight. Fear is blindness. And God's word tells us that even if nations rise and kingdoms fall and mountains melt, we are not alone, that Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, beat death and hell, remains in heaven to renew all things. And we are scared. Friends, we are at our best as a church when the church is a courageous people. And you see, in the the greatest uh, times of the life of the church, way back in the second century when the bubonic plague hit, the Eastern world, and everyone ran for the hills, and even people were abandoning their own family to the plague and to death. What happened? The Christians stayed put. They nursed even, the, for even their enemies to health. They did not, they, why? Because they were not afraid. They were not afraid, and that empowered them to love. Think what we could do if we were not afraid. So here's what I'm exhorting us to do, family of God. Let us renounce fear as the godless spectacle that it is. Let us stop indulging it. And let us believe with all of our hearts that Jesus is stronger than our fear. And that we, with him in our boat, don't have to fear anything. And because of that, we can be a community that bears hope, that gives generously and radically, that does not fear sacrifice or even death, that opens our homes to strangers, that speaks to the world of our coming hope. We look to the day. We know we are headed towards the day when there will no longer be any sea. And so therefore, we don't have to be afraid. So do you hear that question to you? Do you hear the question of Jesus trying to open your heart like a key? Why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Let's pray. I'm just going to use the simple prayer of an Irish fisherman. Lord, the sea is so wide. My boat is so small. Jesus, have mercy. The sea is so wide. My boat is so small. Jesus, have mercy. Amen.